Hey, good morning. Good morning. Buenos dias. Why don't you guys stand because it is December, which means Christmas songs. We're excited to be here with you this morning, so let's sing the song together. All right, good morning. You can have a seat. So good to have you here with us this morning. I'm Dan. I'm the lead pastor here, and we are into the Christmas season for sure, even though it's 55 degrees. What the heck is going on? What is happening around here? Um, today we are finishing up our series on questions Jesus asked, and next week we're going to move into uh, a new series about Christmas called Not Home for Christmas, which I think is appropriate because we are not in our location for Christmas. And that theme actually runs throughout the, the Christmas account, so we're going to be looking at that the next couple weeks. Um, before we start today, uh, I want to take us back to uh, the time before Jesus came, hundreds of years, some think 500, 700 years before he came, when God spoke through the prophets about his coming, um, anticipating his coming. And this is what we read through the prophet Isaiah and Isaiah 25. It says this, But here on this mountain, God of the angel armies will throw a feast for all the people of the world, a feast of the finest foods, a feast with vintage wines, a feast of seven courses, a feast lavish with gourmet desserts. And here on this mountain, God will banish the pall of doom hanging over all peoples, the shadow of doom darkening all nations. Yes, he'll banish death forever. And God will wipe the tears from every face. He'll remove every sign of disgrace from his people wherever they are. Yes, God says so. Also, at this time, people will say, look at what's happened. This is our God. We've waited for him, and he showed up and saved us. This God, the one that we waited for. Let's celebrate. Let's sing the joys of his salvation. And it goes on. So there's an anticipation, right, that, that the Messiah was coming and that things were going to be made right someday. We know that Jesus has come. We know that, that death has been defeated. Uh, he has shown up. He has saved us. And we have the opportunity today to, um, to remember and, and kind of remember and anticipate his coming, but also to declare he came and he accomplished. So I'm going to invite you to stand up. We're going to do something a little bit different today, okay? Um, because there is, an, there is something really important about us singing together. It is a corporate thing that we do together. It's not just an individual thing. So we're, we're going to do a little exercise here this morning. So go with me. All right, we're going to sing a song together, just a chorus. All right, so I'm going to invite you, and I'm going to ask Victoria to lay down the, the chord for me so I can find the right key. I think I remember how to do that. Okay. And we're going to sing this. We're going to sing it out together loud, and then I'm going to stop us in the middle. We're going to talk for a second, okay? One more time. Can you lay it down? Okay, so go ahead and put the slide up. You ready? Here we go. Fall on your knees, oh, the angel voices, oh, night divine. Okay, so as we sing that together, right, a lot of times when we worship, we're focused on just us and God, right? 
We're going to sing it one more time, and here's what I want to do. I, this is a corporate act means that we, we sing for each other. We sing to each other. The scriptures say speak to one another. We speak to each other these words of truth. So I want you to sing it this time, and I want you to think about how can I encourage the people around me, this body, in the way that I worship and bring a sense of unity and oneness together, okay? You ready? So we're going to try it again. So let's think about that. I'm going to give you just 10 seconds to think about that before we sing. All right, let's sing it for each other. Ready? It's a joy to be here with you all this morning and sing these Christmas hymns together. And there is so much joy to be had this time of year as we celebrate Christ's entrance into this world, but this season can also be a time of grief and sadness for many of us. Whether it's because of sin, because of loss, loneliness, finances, disease, current world events, mental illness, the list goes on. The reality is that Jesus came to our world 2,000 years ago because our world was broken, and it still is. We want to take some time this morning to invite you into a prayer that we can all say together. It comes from Lisa Apello, a widower and mother of seven who has devoted her recent years to sharing her faith in Christ with others and the hope that he provides in grief. And as we read this, whether you are in a state of grief or not, I want to invite you to surrender yourself to God in this moment, allowing him to speak into your circumstances. Let's read and pray this together. Dear Lord, we cry out to you. Where else would we go with our deep loss? Our heart is split open. Our pain feels like it's pulling us under, and our spirit is crushed. You have promised to be close to the brokenhearted and to draw near to us if we will draw near to you. Comfort us as only you can. Wrap us with your presence and fill the empty spaces of our heart with the length and width and height and depth of your love for us. Let us see that you are good, even on days which feel so far from it. We declare this, that we know to be true, that you are good and you do good. Lord, even though we don't understand the circumstances, we trust you. Give us your peace that passes all understanding. Thank you for taking on flesh and dwelling among us, for taking our pain and bearing our sorrows. We praise you and thank you for the gift of eternal life. O oh Lord, as the world celebrates with merrymaking and song, restore joy to us. Put a new song in our mouth that we might praise you and live out the abundance of life that you've promised and secured for us. Amen. You all can have a seat. That is true. It's good to stand here with you all, to be together, and to say that. 
And in continuation of that prayer and sentiment, we want to encourage you to sit and reflect and focus on God and those around you as we sing this next song. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are there for us in these times and in this season, whether it's good or bad, whether we have all the things that we want or think we need, but that you provide what we truly need. And I pray that we open our hearts and our senses to that and that we trust you in this season, every season. Thank you for letting us worship together. Amen. Amen. It's good to be with you. Uh, my name is Tom. I'm our teaching pastor here at Life Community Church. And we are wrapping up, as Dan mentioned earlier, we are wrapping up a series that we've just called When Jesus Asks. And we've looked at a string of questions in the, in the Gospel of Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, just, just questions that Jesus asked along the way as he, as he interacted with people. Um, but I want to start this morning with a story. It's a story of, um, well, of my first real heartbreak. I was 14 years old. Her name was Jennifer. That's what was on her birth certificate. She went by Jane, but we'll call her Jennifer in case she watches this later. I don't want her to know that it still affects me. <laughs> I was 14, and she was 16. I will let you draw your own conclusions about that. Um, she had her license. I was just a freshman in high school. Again, I'm not trying to brag. I'm just saying that I was 14, and she was 16. She was, she was a lovely young lady. I assume that she's gone on and, and had, a, had a wonderful life without me um, in it. But, um, but I, was, I had a pretty big crush on her, and she gave me real attention. Um, we, we, went, we went on, like, dates. Uh, I bought her pizza. Like, it happened. Okay? And then one day, um, one day, she went bowling with her friends, a group of her girlfriends, and then she just stopped talking to me. I know, right? This was... We had, she had been, I thought, my girl for a couple months, and she went bowling with her friends, and after going bowling with her friends, she wouldn't answer my calls. Okay, she lived not far from me. I rode my bike by her house. <clears throat> she didn't come out to say hi. None of that happened. But then slowly, over time, she kind of just like merged her way back into my life very clearly as a friend, as a friend. And, um, and along the way, like, I mean, a, a year or so later, um, being uh, the, the mature young man that I was at that point, 15 years old, um, I got to talking pretty bad about her. I said some unkind things about Jennifer. And um, it's, it's true, I'm not proud of it, but it happened. Um, and those unkind things got back to her. They got back to her. And, um, and I remember this moment. It was, it's, you know, there's certain moments that just, they, they are like burnt into your memory. I remember the moment where um, she was at church, and I was at church, and she was leaving, and, and she had looked at me like very crossly, and it was clear that she had, the things, the, the bad things I had said had been repeated to her. It was clear that, that uh, there was very little chance that, that, that my affections were ever going to be returned, um, like I had hoped they would, especially after what I'd said about her. And as she was leaving, she turned and she looked at me and she said, I thought you were my friend. I know, you feel bad for her, right? But I said, oh yeah? I thought you were my girlfriend. <laughs> it's like that, you know, it's like, there's like a handful of moments in your life where the words just come out, the right words at the right time. And it was one of those moments. But I remember, I do remember as a, as a young boy, 
or young, young man, um, feeling like that sense of just being hurt by, by her. Like, like, I didn't understand. I was, I, like, and I was embarrassed. I was crushed by the fact that like, she was giving me all this attention and, and she was leading me to believe certain things were true and then suddenly they weren't. And the moral of this story is, young men, don't let your girlfriends go bowling with their friends. <laughs> is, that's, that's the first lesson. But the second one is this. We're going we're gonna to look at something this morning, the, this last question of Jesus that we're going to examine. And, um, and tonally, it's a little different from this story. We're going to look at this question. Why have you forsaken me? Jesus asks. Why have you forsaken me? Why have you deserted me? Why have you abandoned me? That word forsaken means both of those things. Why have you let me go? Jesus asks. And this question is unique amongst all the questions we've been looking at in this series. Every other question that we've looked at was Jesus asking a question of some other human person who was present. Either his followers or those who opposed him. Or to the crowds. This question he asks of his father. This question he asks of his father. It's the only one on the list that that's true of. And, and yes, it's Christmas time. We've, we've, we've uh, worshipped God this morning with some, some seasonal Christmas worship. But before we turn our attention completely to that, we're going to look here at, at the end of Jesus' story. Right? At least on earth. And we're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew still in chapter 27. We're going to go to Matthew chapter 27. And, and in the lead up to this, we've looked at some questions recently related to the, the last sort of hours of, of Jesus' life um, be, prior to his, his crucifixion. But, but before we read, we need to set this up. He had, he had gone through the Last Supper with his, his followers, where this, this last meal, this intimate last meal where he had instructed them and, and, and had, had told them some hard truths, right? And then they'd gone to the garden to pray, which, which we looked at recently, Right? He'd gone to the garden to pray, and he asked, like, Why, can't you even watch with me for an hour? That's where we were last week. And he had prayed to his father and said, if there's any other way, okay, if there's any other way, can it be that way? And then he's betrayed. He's betrayed by one of his own. He's betrayed, and then he's on trial, and he's been beaten, and he's carried his cross as far as he could until he could take it no further, and someone else carried it to the hill of his execution. And we're going to pick this up in Matthew chapter 27, verse 35. Matthew 27, verse 35. And it says this. It says, when they had crucified him. I'm going to pause. When they had crucified him. This brutal execution, right? Nailed to the cross. Nailed to the cross. Most often, those who were crucified, they didn't die from their wounds. They, they died from basically suffocating when they could, had no more strength to, to lift themselves up and take any more breath. Where they, they were just beaten beyond recognition often. And it just says here in Matthew's gospel, they had cruci when they had crucified him. What we're about to read is in the context of Jesus in that moment. They'd crucified him. They divided up his clothes by casting lots. That's the, that's the Romans around him, the Roman soldiers around him. So the, the, 
the agents that were, that were used to, to execute Jesus, they take his clothes and they basically just play a game of chance to, to, to pass them out to one another. And then in verse 36 it says, And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. That even is a strange thing. Most, most people who were crucified were just hung on that cross. They weren't going anywhere. There was no reason to keep watch. They were hung there, and usually for days they would suffer in public display. But Jesus, the Romans, stayed there and kept watch over him. And above his head they placed the written charge against him. It says, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And so here is Jesus. Here is Jesus. And he's, he's crucified. He's hanging on that cross. He's there. And, there's, it, and, and Matthew's gospel tells us that there were people around him. There were Romans around him. Right? They were probably the group that's going to be in this passage most distant from him. Right? In all likelihood, the Romans of the day really didn't know much about him at all other than maybe he had a following of people that they were supposed to be concerned with. So these guards were told to, to, to crucify him and to, to keep watch over him there. And so they did, and along the way, they, they made a mockery of him, right? They hung this sign, we're killing the king of the Jews. And it's this, this first level of people that are there at Jesus' crucifixion. Look at verse 38, moving on. It says, two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. But then it says, those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads. The people around him, the people just of the city, of the area, as they came and went, and they passed by Jesus, they hurled insults at him. In all likelihood, these are the people who just a week before or earlier that week even, had, had celebrated his arrival. You see, it wasn't just the Romans that had made a mockery of Jesus, that were insulting him. It was, it was the people of the land, like the people who, who just a few days before had marched into the city with him to celebrate the revolution that was going to take place. And he was going to be their, their new leader. And they were excited about it, but now they're just insulting him. And we know that they knew about him because it goes on in verse 40 and says, the, the, these people, it says they, they were passing by, they were saying, you who were going to destroy the temple and, and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the son of God. They're mocking him. They're mocking him. Right? Earlier in the week, it was Hosanna. And now they're mocking him. Save yourself. Save yourself. And then it's, then, oh, sorry, I jumped ahead. Then it says this in verse 41, in the same way the chief priests and teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. Now it's his opponents, the people that, the people that were really behind his, his execution, the people who, who had had enough of his talk, the people who, who had seen to it that the pressure was applied in the right places that he was crucified. They're now mocking him, the chief priests, the elders, the religious leaders of the day, the power brokers, they were mocking him. And the circle just keeps getting closer on him, right? The Ro First, it's the Romans. And then just the people of the land, the people of the city around him. And now it's the people that he had confronted. And read on in verse 42. This is what they say. He said, he saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. That's 
That is a, a mockery. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him, for he said, I am the son of God. They're taking his claims and using them against him, right? They're taking his claims and using them against him. He, sa he says that salvation is found in him, but he can't even save himself. He says he's God's son, but here he is hanging on the tree. And his opponents felt, you can, we can hear it in what they're saying, they felt like that they had won, right? They had won. Their mockery was justified. And in verse 44, it says this, in the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. See, it wasn't just the Romans and the common people and his opponents, but even the criminals right next to him. Those in closest physical proximity to him, they heaped insults on him. Now, we know that one of those Jesus promised salvation to before it was all said and done, right? But in this moment, as Matthew records it, Jesus is surrounded, he is surrounded by people who are mocking him, people who are, who, who are insulting him. The crucifixion was obviously brutal physically. It was obviously painful and grotesque. But it was also not just physical, there was an emotional pain that Jesus is feeling. The whole world was out for him. And then he says, or this happens in verse 45, it says, from noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. And about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That's Aramaic, which means my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? In this moment, in this moment, Jesus also experienced the rejection of his father. It wasn't just the Romans. It wasn't just the people of the land. It wasn't just the religious leaders or the criminals on the cross. Jesus was confronted, the son was confronted for the first time in eternity. He was confronted with separation from his father. Why have you forsaken me? Why have you let me go? Why am I abandoned here? That's a potent question. God, why? Why? This was always the plan, right? One of the wonderful things about the Christmas season is that we know that this was always the plan. It was always the plan for the, the child that Mary held to be the sacrifice on the cross. But does having a plan and actually having to go through with it make the pain any less? As we raise our children and then we send them off, we know that that's the natural progression of things but the pain is still there right does knowing it's going to happen cause us to to harden ourselves in a way that we don't feel it i'm sorry i still cry every time i get to the end of of 
Saving Private Ryan or, or Schindler's List or, for crying out loud, like Simon Birch. I don't know. Like, I cry even when I know where this is going. We still feel it. And that's where Jesus was. The fact that it was the plan didn't soften the blow. The fact that, th- that he knew that it was coming to this point doesn't make it any less poignant. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why am I here alone? Why do I have to do this? And I want to be a little bit careful with this. As, as time's gone on, people have taken this and, and they've interpreted it as, because of the relationship of father to son, they've interpreted it almost as divine child abuse. That, that God, had, God had willfully chosen this. And, there's, and that's, that's not fair for several reasons. One of which is that the son, Jesus, had his own agency. He chose this path. He chose this path. He had said the night before, I could, I, could, I could make it all go away. But he chose this path. But it also, I don't think, takes into account the reality of this situation because it wasn't just Jesus who was separated from his father for the first time in all eternity. It was the father who was separated from his son for the first time in all eternity as well. That the pain of this moment, the pain of this moment, of course Jesus was bearing it. But it wasn't his alone. That the Father bore this as well, and this pain was necessary. My God, why have you forsaken me? Why am I here in this moment, and I'm bearing it alone? And the question that Jesus asks is loaded with biblical context. It's not just a random question. It it does express his feelings in the moment, but it goes beyond that. You see, um, this, this question is a quote from Psalm chapter 22. It's a quote from Psalm 22, the very first verse. It's a psalm of David, a psalm, a psalm where David cries out, and David says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the exact same phrase. So Jesus on the cross, in the midst of the pain and the suffering, in the midst of, of, of all of these people who are, who are insulting him and mocking him, and now he's alone and he cries out, in reference to Psalm 22, and Matthew records this for us. And the parallels to Psalm 22 don't just, don't just end with that, that, that first question from verse 1. Look at just, I'm going to want to hit a few spots in the rest of Psalm 22 that are going to make this clear to us. But look at Psalm 22, verse 7, look at what it says. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. And Matthew 27 says those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads. Matthew's recording this from a perspective that, is, that, that accurately reflects what's going on. But he's also reckoning with something else in the scriptures. In verse 15, David writes in Psalm 22, My mouth is dried up like a, like a potsherd. I had to look that up. It's just a broken piece of pottery. Right? My mouth is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. And just before the, where we started reading in Matthew 27, verse 34, it says, There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. Later on, they, they give him bitter wine. Again, this idea is present in both places. In verse 16, David says, They pierce my hands and my feet. In Matthew 27, it says, When they had crucified him. Right? It goes on in verse 18 of Psalm 22. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. 
And in Matthew 27, when they crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. You see, what was going on on the cross was part of the plan. It was the idea from the beginning. And David, unbeknownst to him, I'm going to assume, as he describes his anguish that he's going through, he became a model for what would happen with Jesus on the cross. And as Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That moment is packed with meaning. It's packed with personal meaning for, day, or for, for Jesus. The emptiness that he would feel being separated from his father. The loneliness. The heartbreak. I thought we had something here. That's the feeling. But the phrase that comes out, comes out fully informed about what's really going on, right? The feeling, it doesn't diminish the feeling of Jesus at all. But the, the, the word he uses in quoting Psalm 22 tells us more. The work of the cross was always coming. It was needed. It was necessary. And again, knowing that doesn't lessen the anguish. In, in fact, Think about this. From the moment Jesus was born, it was leading to this moment. This moment was hanging over his life all throughout his 30-some-odd years. He lived knowing this moment was coming. But he also knew that this moment, that the anguish wouldn't be the end of it. He knew that Psalm 22 goes on. It says more than just those things. And I want to read through the, the, the last section of Psalm 22. Because here's where Psalm 22 goes from there. It says, But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him. All you descendants of Israel, for he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. The suffering isn't meaningless. It has meaning. It has power. God hasn't forgotten Jesus. He's let him go to do what's necessary to be done and, and a thousand years earlier, David recognized the same thing. In the midst of David's anguish, he recognizes that God is still in charge. God is still in control. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. The afflicted one of God, God sees the affliction. He hears the cries of the afflicted. Verse 25 says, from you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. In the midst of the anguish, David hadn't forgotten the truth about, about God. In the midst of David's pain that he's writing about in Psalm 22, he recognizes that God will win. His name will go out. He cannot be stopped. 
And when Jesus on the cross says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus knows the rest of this passage too, right? That God will hear his cry. That that's not the end of the story, that moment of separation. It's real and it hurts, but it's not the end. It's, it's not the final word. Keep reading this last bit, verse 29. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive, we try and we try and we try. But it's him. Posterity will serve them. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn. He has done it. He has done it. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? is true in the very same way that he has done it is true. Right? This is the power. This is the power. You see, there's something, there's, there's so much going on. There's so much going on in this. There's very real pain and anguish in Jesus' voice. It's the truth of the situation. He was separated like he had never been. And not just in a year or in 30 years, but in all eternity, he'd never experienced this. And that pain of separation from his father made a dwarf of the physical pain that he was going through. The pain of the separation from his father made the insults and the mockery insignificant. The relationship at least for that moment, wasn't present. And even as Jesus asked the question to the Father, he knows how the story ends. It ends with God's victory through him and his sacrifice in this moment. Because he died, but he didn't stay dead, right? He died in that moment, but he did not stay dead. And he died so that we could have life. Right? He died so that we could have life. But think about this. He was forsaken by the Father so that we never will be. Did we catch that? He died so we can have life, but he was separated from the Father for that moment so that we never have to be. I'm going to bring, uh, Brett is going to come and we're going to close in a song in just a couple minutes. But there's something amazing that's in Scripture. <clears throat> there's something amazing that's in Scripture. Because God had made a promise. He'd made a promise. We see it in Deuteronomy chapter 31. Deuteronomy chapter 31. Where we're told, be, the, the, the Israel is told, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them as they're, as they're preparing to enter the land. For the Lord your God goes with you. And look at what it says. For he will never leave you nor forsake you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. And literally as you just turn the page in the Old Testament, no one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Joshua is told. Unless we think this is just an Old Testament song, 
In the New Testament, in the New Testament, the writer of Hebrews says, keep your lives free from the love of money. It's in that context that we see this again and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. The implication being, if everything in this life is taken away from you, if all the physical stuff goes away, God's promise remains true. I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. And we can hold it and believe it because Jesus was forsaken on our behalf. He was separated from the Father so that we don't have to be. And Jesus himself, we've read Matthew 27, right? He's put in the grave and he returns to life and he meets his disciples and look at the last thing he says to them. Surely I am with you to the end of the age. We're not measuring time any longer. I am with you. You see, it's not just that the Father doesn't leave us nor forsake us. God himself, Jesus, doesn't leave us. He is the promise of God to be with us. He's done it. He's done it. Without a doubt, there's mystery around what happened between the Father and the Son in that moment on the cross. I can't really fully explain how it all works and the mechanics of it. There's questions about how, but there is no doubt about why it took place. There's no question that Jesus was forsaken by the Father so that those who trust him never will be. Amen? And even as we begin this Christmas season, we'll keep it a little lighter the next week or two. But even as we begin this Christmas season, we need to begin with this truth. That the, that the Messiah who was promised, who came into the world, his name means God with us. His name means God with us. And he has promised to never leave us. He is with us. We want everyone to know that reality and that truth, and we know it by trusting him, by telling Jesus that I, I believe, I believe that your death on the cross makes it possible for me to be right with God. That it makes my sin go away. And I believe that you are alive. And I want to share in that resurrection with you. You're my Lord. So we invite you today. I'm going to pray here in just a moment. And if we want you to, we would ask all of you, whether, whether for the first time, whether you acknowledge Christ's sacrifice for you or if you, we just need to re-acknowledge it. Can we re-acknowledge it all the time? For those of us who maybe did for the first time many years ago, can we re-acknowledge it today? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for taking on that moment of separation so that I don't have to. Thank you for bearing up underneath it 
because I could never hold it. Will you pray with me? God, we, um, we just stop and I thank you for the, the work of the cross. God, you, um, you, you took a pain that we can't imagine. And I'm, I'm sorry for my sin that made it necessary. And Christ, Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for facing the shame going through the, the mockery the insults the death to carry my sin we thank you and Holy Spirit we, we thank you we thank you for walking with the son to make it possible that he's to submit to the Father in this, in this way, in this moment. And we ask that, that your power would be real and alive in us. Help us to see the truth. Show us what it means to, to, to faithfully say yes to, you, to Jesus. And we praise you and we thank you. And we ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. We sing that to you and to you alone, Jesus. We thank you. Amen. Tom wasn't kidding. It will be more uplifting next week. But we thank you so much for being with us this Sunday morning, whether this is your first time or you've been here many times. It's been good being with you together. Have a great Sunday. We'll see you next week.